You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And good morning. Welcome to Radiotherapy for uh, first day post-changing the clocks. So grateful for that extra hour this morning. Um, this is Panel Beater, and I'm joined in the studio this morning with uh, Dr Sharma. Good morning. Good morning. I gave myself a lot of credit this morning for only getting five hours sleep. I was like, wow, this feels amazing. I feel great. <laughs> and then I looked at the disparity between like my smartphone watch and the actual clock on the bedside table. I was like, ah, that's what it was. I'm not getting younger. <laughs> um, do you change all your clocks, Dr. Sharma? No, nah, just wait till the next daylight savings. Just leave it go. Like my car clock, that's just going to stay how it is. We'll just wait it out. Seems to sort itself out on average. Yeah. Um, I didn't trust my... I mean, by now we're so used to our smartphones just knowing when it's time to update, but I actually still got up to check other clocks to make sure that my smartphone had, in fact, changed time. I still don't trust Checking it. Checking on your smartphone? Oh, my God. Well, you know, the smartphone automatically yeah, yeah. updates itself, right? And mm-hmm. any right-thinking pe- person, clearly I'm not, <laughs> would just trust it to do I it know. by now. But I still get up and check. Uh, I've got one manual clock. You know, the, um, it turns out there's like a 45-second difference between uh, iPhone clocks and Android clocks. So if you're, uh, you know, if... <laughs> well, there's that digital delay. Sometimes I'm listening to Triple R digital stream in one room and I'll actually have it on radio in another room and, of course, there's a, a delay. So you can't trust anything. Can't trust anything. Hey, we've got a pretty cool show coming up. We've got a special guest. Tell us about that. I'm very excited. So today we're going to be talking about all things nutrition. Yeah. And as you know, it's such a vast topic with no lack of experts anywhere in the world. I think I found the right one. Uh, you'll be pleased to know it's not uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, <laughs> spruiking the evils of gluten or Pete Evans recommending bone broth to, to babies. Uh, we've actually got uh, Millie Padula, who's a qualified uh, expert uh, practicing dietitian who's going to help us navigate the wide and deep seas of the world of nutrition and diet. Awesome. Well, let's, I'm looking forward to a lot. I think we're going to go in some interesting places. I can't wait. Conversation. Hey, um, let's. Uh, do a bit of news first, though, shall we? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. Hey, uh, a couple of things uh, caught my eye in the news today. Uh, well, during the during the week, um, health-related, one of which was the um, uh, the budget and the budget reply. Health got a lot of attention. Did, did you notice that? Absolutely, yeah. So a huge commitment for cancer funding by Labor. Yep. It looks like we're going to have a bit of a Medicare budget again in some respects, um, you know, where the two parties are going to um, each claim to be great protectors of, of Medicare. Um, yeah. And you remember how that was used? It was, I think it was even coined Medi-Scare uh, last, last federal election. That's right. Um, but Labor, when they came back on the back of the... Uh, in their budget reply, um, they're promising $2.3 billion Medicare boost for cancer treatment, bigger tax breaks um, and another um, bunch of money for for education but the overwhelming um, budget differential was with um, with uh, Medicare 
And I think one of the responses by a senior Liberal politician was, well, hang on, uh, healthcare, it's already free and it's all fine. And I think it just completely underestimated all the out-of-pocket costs oh. that are actually associated with cancer treatment. It's Especially things like um, r- rural and regional, of course. We know that you know it's well-storied that rural and regional Australia um, is not completely serviced uh, for a range of health issues, but it really highlighted um, needs for support in regards to cancer. Um, and, uh, yeah, to... to to, ha- to then have a response that's free anyway seems like a massive disconnect. Completely. It's very obvious whoever made that statement is not in close contact with uh, you know, a close family member who's actually gone through that experience. Mm. And, you know, often we talk, uh, think about... Uh, health issues we imagine them as being something that come quite kind of later in life that you can almost kind of foresee coming something like diabetes or a heart disease cancer will often just appear out of the blue when you're when you least expect it when you're caught off guard when you're uh you know in a phase of your life when you're committed to to working somewhere or living far away from services and uh, it's you're always forever just kind of paying playing catch up with a bank account yeah and uh so i think it's long overdue i think it's a recognition of the out-of-pocket costs which have just been rising and rising in in all domains and and cancer patients needed the most so it's very welcome really very welcome um the other item uh that caught my eye was and it's election related is the donation by the pharmacy guild oh boy of, of uh significant not 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 insignificant amount of money to um one nation, yeah, um, and, and they've got every right to donate to whoever they want to. But the, the the curiosity, if that's the word for me, is donating to an anti-vaccine. Well, the, I, the thing is, they can donate to whoever they want, and we have the right to yeah. judge them on who they donate to. When this news first came out, I really thought this was some kind of hoax, and maybe someone had just kind of misinterpreted things. And people were posting about this on Twitter with question marks, with a little bit of disbelief, <laughs> but also a little bit of kind of self-checking, like, oh, is this actually real? And then the Guild just uh, declined to answer uh, again and again, and I think their response was, was pretty pathetic. Um, the members of the Guild were uh, pretty upset about the Guild's response to, to this as well. And so, yes, of course, it's uh, it, they're also tacitly supporting an anti-vax um, party in many ways, but it, let's, let's be honest, it goes much beyond that, doesn't it? If uh, if One Nation changed their policies on vaccinations, that would uh, do very little yeah. to uh, to change my opinions on them. And the fact that the, the Guild can, uh, can can support them on that is uh, is really worrying. It's a huge union. It's yeah. it's arguably one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful trade union in the country. Yeah, it's interesting to frame it like that because, of course, there's all sorts of regulations about number of... Um, is licensing the word for pharmacists? You know, in terms of can own retail outlets? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and certainly highly regulated in terms of um, that, that side of things. Um, so it's not insignificant, um, as certainly from a health sector point of view, uh, that they're, they're donating that kind of money. Um, but I also wonder to what end, like... Clearly, One Nation won't set a health agenda in that regard. I mean, they they can set the um, a lot of um, certainly a lot of discussions. You know, they're well path well trod on climate science, for example, um, and guns, perhaps <laughs> in recent in light of recent outcomes. Um, but they're hardly going to change 
federal law on that, though, are they? Well, I, I think, and I'm, I'm, this is pure speculation here, so One Nation often advantages the agenda of rural, regional Australia, and that's actually somewhere where the pharmacies are trying to get, the pharmacists are trying to get a bit of a, uh, a stronghold in terms of getting more control uh, over delivery of healthcare, not just selling medicines, and I, I wonder if that's kind of behind their agenda. And look, I feel free to speculate, because it's not like the Pharmacy Guild has actually shed any light on what their intentions were with this, mm. so I can only assume the worst yeah yeah at, at a minimum it means access doesn't it it just means access to get in the ears of absolutely of they if we're if, if we're in the spirit of balance in in any form here the guild has said that they've also made donations to uh labor liberals and the nationals the only party they seem to have ignored so far is the greens the queensland greens that's hilarious <laughs> and i think that'll convince absolutely no one it convince absolutely no one Triple R. Radiotherapy Triple R with uh, myself, panel beater, Dr. Sharma, and our very special guest, Dr. Sharma. That's right. Well, like I said, I wanted to bring along an expert to uh, teach us the do's and don'ts and uh, the <laughs> details, really, uh, of how to navigate this topic of nutrition and diet. And so we've, we're so lucky to be joined by Millie Padula, who is a, uh, an accredited practicing dietitian. Hopefully a term she's going to explain to us soon uh, because it is relevant. She has a degree in food and science nutrition and a master of dietetics. And she's also the brains behind Dietitian Edition, which is an online platform for people who want to learn about nutrition, find recipes and upskilling in the finer points of controlling their diet. And you know how I know Dietitian Edition is legit, panel beater? How do you know, Dr. Sharma? See, there's, there's a lot of, of rubbish out there, but the motto or tagline for Dietitian Edition is... Nutrition is a science, not an opinion. Ah. Boom. Boom. Yeah. Is that a that, mic drop? Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, that, that's how you know we're, we're going to hear the good stuff. So welcome, Millie. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. It's an honour. Great to have you with us. Yeah. Um, I really like that uh, as, your, as your tagline, nutrition is a science, not an opinion, because I imagine as a dietitian who works with people in private practice but also in hospitals, I mean, everyone's got a bit of an opinion on nutrition, right? Absolutely. And I guess the main thing to think about is that everybody eats. So everybody has an opinion about what goes into their mouth. And a lot of the time, those opinions are based on experiences that they've had themselves or experiences from family members or friends or other, I guess, professionals that perhaps may or may not be qualified. So it is really important to understand that everything a dietitian recommends does have some evidence behind it. And we do the hard yards to deliver our clients the absolute best um, healthcare that we can. It's funny you say that, how everyone does have their experiences and it's a personal experience of, well, that week I ate food X, I know, kale, and I felt, you know, amazing and fantastic, but also, you know, my mum taught me that, you know, such and such food is kind of good for me, and they're such persuasive stories, and we all hear buzzwords about, you know, like nutrients and minerals and, and wellness, and I think sometimes we're so familiar with the terms, it creates this kind of illusion of, like, explanatory depth. We all think we understand it in a lot more detail than we actually do, whereas you've actually, you actually, actually do. Um, 
coffee's a good it occurs to me coffee's a good example here right so people will say i can't get my day started without my coffee but that's really different than saying coffee is good for me absolutely yeah and coffee is one that people tend to have a lot of opinions about and we can delve into that a little bit if you like um yeah yeah well tell us yeah yeah so (laughs) coffee is something that you probably see coming up in the media a lot is it good is it bad and at the end of the day there is nothing harmful about coffee depending on how much you drink it and i am an absolute sucker for a morning (laughs) soy latte It, it gets me started and i can't can't go to work without it but it all comes down to how often you're having it and how regularly so we say about four cups of coffee a day is within um, safety. Yeah. That's four, good to hear. Four cups back to back? Look, <laughs> timing is, um, I guess, dependent on you. And if you're an anxious person, I'd say let's look yeah. at let, separating that yeah, out. Let, let me bit. tell you, uh, panel beta, as someone who's taken many pulses in my GDP practice of uh, people who had three more, it's, uh, yes, maybe back to back is not the best idea. And, and, and if we had a uh, sleep therapist in the room, they'd be going, nah. Yeah, nah. they wouldn't be um, nodding their heads at that one, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess you're speaking from a perspective of like safety, I guess. And, uh, and that's such a tough line to draw. And this is part of what makes the science of nutrition so tough, I imagine, because everyone is different. It sounds like a bit of a truism, but you know, different body weights, uh, different genders, different races. Uh, people respond very differently. And, and that's part of what makes the, this field so challenging, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why as dietitians, we are constantly in, I don't want to say competition, because sometimes the media can be really beneficial for us. But when the media or social influences or whatever it might be are recommending things to um, their clientele or their following, they don't know anything about that person. And I'm always stressing the importance of why dietitians are that little bit superior, because we get to know everything about you, your medical history, how active you are. um, Do you have preferences when it comes to eating are you vegetarian what are your religious beliefs all those things matter well with that in mind what would a typical cons- initial consult look like, whether it's hospital-based or clinic-based? Yeah, yeah. So it's quite different depending on where I am. Clinic-wise, um, an initial consult can go from anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour. And it's for me, I really like to get on that patient level and get to know them aside from their nutrition goals and their their medical history or whatever it might be. Um, So it's about building that rapport. But to give you a bit of an idea of how it runs, it's, you know, why are you here? What can I help you with Um, in terms of their nutrition, getting a little bit of a background about themselves, their lifestyle, their social setting, who do they live with? Are they doing the cooking, etc. And then we delve into their medical history because we know that that plays a really, really important part in um, how your body works and your nutrition goals. And then I have a look at what they're eating a normal day. And that's probably the hardest part for most clients is to relay what they are eating on a, on a day-to-day basis. And you get, oh, you know, sometimes I have this, but last night I had a burger. And, and that's not all the time. And all the truth starts to come out when you get into the nitty gritty. And then, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an education session essentially. So I sit down with them and make sure that I am meeting their goals and, and providing them with um, sustainable changes that they can make, whether it be over the next four weeks, six weeks, um, and so on. So you tell me if I'm doing the right thing as a GP. So when I refer patients to a dietitian, I'm actually very well aware of how poor we can all be at reporting what we eat. I know this from personal experience. Um, But some of it is just literal forgetfulness, which is actually one of the biggest 
challenges in in study of studies of nutrition how poor our recall can be of what we've eaten so generally i'll ask patients to kind of keep a diary and write down everything they've eaten for at least like the last few days before they see a dietitian but then i kind of gave up with that and i said actually just start taking a photo with your smartphone before it goes in your uh. mouth take a photo and you can show the dietitian and uh, is, that, is that a reasonable thing to that do? that is a much more accurate way okay. of um getting an idea of what somebody is eating and what people forget to write in their food diaries is when they're cooking kids for the cooking um sorry cooking their dinner for the kids and they're picking at little bits and pieces and that quick biscuit in the tea room at work that they're all the things that are forgotten on the food diary so photos is a great way of showing what you're actually eating and it gives us an idea of the portion sizes as well because weighing food it's not easy it's not practical for everybody to do so photos gives us a great idea so if any gps are listening if you can get your clients to start taking some photos of their food that would help us out and and that's how you disaggregate um epidemiological results compared to the individual's results right yeah absolutely yeah that's a good point so um you mentioned that as uh part of the consult the the first question will be something like why are you here yes. um can you give us a snapshot of the most common answers to that question yeah so in my scope of practice i'm usually seeing weight loss clients um individuals with newly diagnosed diabetes or unstable blood sugar levels and food intolerances so that's a new one that's um you know you've probably seen a lot in the media and gut health and the the link there between that and so many other aspects of health is um a, a real topic of conversation at the moment so most people will say something like i've been trying to lose weight for however long and i just need a little bit of assistance or i feel like i'm eating the right things and i'm not having any luck um we do get a little bit of sports nutrition as well people wanting to optimize their performance through nutrition um Whereas in a hospital, it's um, dealing with the complete opposite to that. So looking at malnutrition and how we can give them the best nutrition to um, optimise their treatments and make their medications, I guess, work to absolute optimal. How would... um, It occurs to me it might be useful to hear from your point of view. What's the difference do you think people are doing when they talk about diet compared to when they're talking about nutrition? Yeah, so as a dietitian, surprisingly, um, I actually don't like the word diet because that to Mm. me screams restrictive and imbalanced and that's not what uh, dietitians are about. And I guess nutrition is more about that whole state of what food is and what it means to you and what it can do for you. So nutrition, we know, um, is mainly used for fuel and for energy, but it has so many other purposes in people's life. And it can be religious and it can be cultural or even personal. And I find that when people come to me and they say, I've cut out all my favourite foods. I don't eat ice cream. I don't have a glass of wine, whatever it might be. I, I go back to them and I say, do you actually enjoy that? And they say, well, I do. That brings me happiness. And that there is a whole other part of nutrition that isn't always addressed. So I think it is important to distinguish between the two. And if you come to a dietitian, you're not going to be put on a diet. I mean, you may be. I'm speaking generally from um, my point of view, but mm. it is important for people to know. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are on Radiotherapy with Panel Beta, uh, Viyam Sharma, that's myself, and uh, Millie Padula, our dietitian expert guest today. We are talking all things nutrition. Speaking of, uh, one thing I wanted to get some clarification on from our expert today is uh, 
nutritionist versus dietitian. I understand it's a bit of a, uh, a bone of contention and there's a lot of confusion around that as well. So tell us a bit, what, what would you say is the difference? Yeah, really, really good question. Um, I guess starting off, it is important to understand that every dietitian is also a nutritionist, but not all nutritionists are dietitians. So a dietitian is somebody who has undergone years and years of training. They usually have, or they always will have a tertiary degree and possibly a master's degree behind them. And they have to go through hours every single month of professional development to uphold their accreditation. A nutritionist, on the other hand, is not a regulated term. So anybody can call themselves, you guys could be nutritionists. My mum could be a nutritionist. Mm, it you wouldn't want my advice. <laughs> and it's, it's not regulated and um, whilst a nutritionist may have a tertiary education or a degree, they may not as well. So they possibly could have done a three-week course or a 12-week course online and still call themselves a nutritionist. So I'm always stressing the importance of checking where you are, getting your advice from, and it's okay to ask people. It's okay to shoot them a quick message if um, you're, you are looking online or whatever it might be, to just say, hey, look, um, what are your qualifications? So, yeah. Yeah, in fact, this is something I find quite challenging as a GP because often I'll bring up the fact that I'd like to refer a patient to a dietitian. Uh, a good example would be of a newly diagnosed uh, patient with diabetes. Yeah. And they'll often say, oh, no, I'm getting nutrition advice from my personal trainer that's a big one recently or their naturopath or a nutritionist and it's a bit of a tough thing to try to kind of explain to people you might be getting advice from others it might even be reasonable advice but how can we really know for sure and it's a, it's a tough thing to actually explain to people that what, why dietitians are so trusted by the medical community why we consider uh, dietetics as part of the allied health is this strong base towards uh, to evidence uh, this strong evidence base behind everything you guys say it comes from research actually testing out does it work or not does it just kind of sound good or not that's really not enough yeah absolutely and like we were saying before taking advice from sally next door isn't a good enough reason for you to jump on the bandwagon of a particular diet and as dietitians, and this is how I usually segregate um, the difference between ourselves and other professionals, is that we have that medical training. So we have been assessed and supervised and watched like an absolute hawk um, in a hospital setting, dealing with so many different clinical conditions. So we are, and I'm not trying to blow my own horn here, but we are that little bit, um, yeah, superior, I guess, to, to other people in the nutrition field and I mean it, like you said everybody has a place and some people make some incredible recommendations that I, I will back um, but some of my consults I am dealing with myth bu or busting all these um, myths that people have heard from per personal trainers and um, other people yeah. in that space. And, and I'll be the first to admit from, from doctors to a certain extent as well I think probably one of the first pieces of dietary advice I remember was uh, as an eight-year-old I had arrived in Australia uh, as an immigrant and my mum took me to the doctor and there was a poster up on his wall and it was of this triangle and it had these horizontal lines running across it and had different icons for, for different food groups and at the bottom was bread and pasta which is what you're supposed to have the most of and right at the top were like lollies and fats and chocolates <laughs> And for the next decade, I kept seeing this repeatedly. I'd see this on kids' TV programs. I'd see this um, at, at school on the side of cornflakes boxes on 
you know, kids' TV shows and everywhere else. And then it just seemed to kind of vanish like a bit of a ghost without too much debate. And so the Food Parent was, in theory, I guess, like this, this healthy eating guide. And, and, and it just seems to just vanish without a bit of a trace, really. I, I, I don't know if I'm trying to say it was completely wrong, but I, I think there were certainly aspects of it that were later found to be a bit problematic, like not showing the distinction between what we'd call, say, low GI and high GI carbohydrates or... Good you know, and bad fats. Good and bad fats and mm. those kind of things. Um, and I actually looked into the history of it. So the the food pyramid actually came about, really, I think, in roughly 1992, devised by the US Department of Agriculture. Uh, if you can imagine their vested interest in getting people to eat more of the things at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, and there were actually qualified... Uh, people with their scientific background on those panels and there was a bit of debate around that but the origins of even that food pyramid actually go back to the 70s in sweden when the government had proposed this as an eating guide at a time of economic austerity the idea being that if you don't have enough money you can still kind of eat enough Hmm. and it's i don't think it's saying anything drastically drastically wrong but it just kind of missed some of those finer points that i think now we have a bit of an awareness Often people want a bit more detail, crave a bit more detail, can can deal with a bit more complexity. So how do you deal with, with those kind of historical ideas people have that I guess doctors have promoted in the past that may not actually track best with what you would recommend these days? Yeah, and it's not wrong to be promoting the food pyramid or the Australian guidelines to healthy eating, but they are a little bit outdated. And what we have to remember is that it's a very generalised guide. So that's looking at a population, not the individual. And it's a good place to start because because you can see that there is different food groups and that they provide us with different nutrients and they're beneficial for all, all sorts of different reasons. But it is a very, very generalised guide and nutrition goes far beyond that. And it's hard to tell people that, especially as a dietitian, we are so much more than the guidelines or the food pyramid and I will have people sit down and say I know about the pyramid, I've got the plate, what more could you do for me? And it's a little bit tiresome but that's when you've got to a preach for yourself and stand up and show them what, what you can do for them. You talked about it, um, I think the phrase you used was myth-busting. Um, that sounds really interesting to me because the, I guess part of what uh, Dr Sharma is pointing to is that we get told certain advice at certain times and then that advice changes and pe- people, the general population, could be forgiven for just ending up going, well, you just keep changing it all the time. I don't know what to trust. I'm just going to do what feels right. Is you confronting that? Is that what you're referring to as myth-busting? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of myth-busting, I mean more that somebody will come to me and say, so I've heard coconut oil is the new ah. be-all and end-all, that sort of thing. Um, But you are right in saying that people hear all sorts of things and it becomes confusing because they don't know what to believe, they don't know who to believe. Um, And I don't know who... Who to, bl- who to blame for that or who's responsible? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I understand. Look, I, I think this is a, a problem that has just escalated so much in recent times. Uh, I'd say mainly on the platform of social media because mm. I think if one thing social media has done is it's given voice to a lot of people and equalised a lot of voices that maybe aren't equal on all topics. Mm. Um, we've certainly seen the evolution of the wellness movement as well and how well that proliferates in the social media space. Gwyneth. Oh, good old Gwyneth. When I say good, I mean not good. Um, it's it's a tough one in that the they've kind of changed the game a little bit. This idea of wellness being that even if you're okay, you can be better. And that's not usually a space where, say, someone like me, like a GP or a doctor, would normally operate. So they 
own this field a little bit. They also own the aesthetic of the times when things are, have got a nice you know, Instagram filter and the pastel-coloured smoothies and everything just looks kind of nice and beautiful. And it is so persuasive. And you look at you know, the person with the six-pack and, and you just go, oh, my God, it's how – of course I want to be like that. And there's so much power that comes with that imagery, with that narrative, and it becomes very difficult to kind of debate, which I guess Health Edition's kind of trying to do. It's trying to move into that space yeah, but actually bring yeah. some truth to it. Yeah, and that's exactly why I started that platform. And I found I th- – the main reason I jumped on social media was because I'm super creative and I love sharing my recipes and nutrition tips with the population. But I found out that there was so much, um, I guess, jargon out there coming from people who have absolutely no qualifications and it is it's hard not to be persuaded by these beautiful people and models and bodybuilders to to buy products that they are promoting but what you have to remember is is that again these people aren't qualified um, and they're usually getting paid or endorsed to to promote these products and at the end of the day no supplement or superfood or powder or tea is going to give you everything that you need in terms of health and nutrition. And at the end of the day, it, it comes back down to that mm. healthy, balanced diet. And that's what I'm trying to promote on my on my page. And mm. it's hard with these types of people to... I mean, I've had people say, why don't you fight back? You know, get on there and give them your opinion. But they've already got their loyal following. And it's, it's almost like a cult as such, where I thought, I'm going to create my own space, get some loyal followers behind me and start creating... Um, yeah, more of a, an evidence-based platform. And you'll see um, if you are on Instagram that there are so many more dietitians in that space now trying to do the same thing. So it's, it's really positive. Um, and I think we're starting to have a little bit of an impact, which is good. That's fantastic. And, uh, and I guess even apart from social media, coming back to that myth-busting we were talking about, you know, coconut oil will be milk, I think you said, I can't remember, <laughs> uh, will, be, will be the next great thing. A lot of this just comes down to bad reporting of science. Well, it will actually be a, a, a report or a scientific study that's actually done in good faith, which will show in mice there is some association between X, <laughs> Y and Z. And how do you fit that into you know, six words when you're trying to compete with, you know, with, uh, with, with the online media? Well, yeah, X, Y, Z is good for you. X, Y, Z is bad for you with no consideration to what the effect size would be and, and you know, the, what are the other things that are likely to contribute that could have caused that effect. And, yeah, those are the kind of things you have to battle. Yeah, and on that point as well of, um, you know, taking something so minuscule and preaching it, um, it's a similar thing with the vitamin C. I don't know if you're familiar with that one at the moment in the media um, and the effect that that can have on blood sugar levels for diabetics. They were saying that a certain amount... I've not amount, heard of this, yeah, no. Yeah, so they were saying that um, a certain amount of vitamin C per day can help with blood sugar control. And I've had people come into clinic and say you know, their blood sugar levels might be through the roof. So to give you an example, four to eight is a normal reading and these patients might have up to sort of 20s. And they say to me, why don't I get on the vitamin C? And I'm like, hang on, that's the last of your worries. Let's get the, the diet and you know, your carbohydrate load and um, that sort of thing under control first. And I think people just grasp onto anything um, with hope that it will give them some sort of benefit. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back um, to RRR and Radiotherapy, talking all things dietetics. Um, we just uh, were starting to touch on some myths and trends 
let's uh, let's go there. Millie, if we could um, get your thoughts on a few things that we're hearing around the traps at the moment. You mentioned coconut oil. So let's start there. Where where are we at with coconut oil? Oh, where aren't we at with coconut oil? People are adding it to anything and everything these days. Um, so similar to what we were talking about before with studies being conducted only on you know small um, sample sizes and things like that, they did do a study quite some time ago now looking at the effects of coconut oil on um, overall health and well-being and particularly in that space of heart health. And there was a very, very small, um, I guess they, they found a small increase in somebody's um, good cholesterol when they were using coconut oil in their, in their diet every single day. But what they didn't note during this study is that coconut oil actually increases your bad cholesterol as well. So I think the main thing to note is that coconut oil is a saturated fat. And we know that saturated fat consumed in excessive amounts can put us at risk of um, high cholesterol and heart disease. So if we're looking at alternatives like olive oils um, and other sort of plant-based oils, these are high in our unsaturated fats. So they're the ones that are going to reduce our cholesterol and reduce our risk of um, heart disease and associated problems. So at the end of the day, coconut oil is fine to use. I use it in my cooking because I like the taste, but drowning everything you eat in coconut oil, at the end of the day, you're just putting more, more and more fat um, and For you guys listening, saturated fat is what we find in butter and lard. So that's what we're seeing in coconut oil as well. So if you can use an alternative, that's what I would recommend. This is such a consequence of trying to split things into good and bad, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's... We, we do this, we give some of these new foods just so much power and, uh, and, and then people are often surprised a few months later when it turns out maybe that wasn't the best idea. But we get caught out every time, don't we? We certainly do. I, my head spins on, on, oil, on coconut oil just from the stuff that I seem to come across a bit. What about oils in general? Distinction between, say, the peanut oils and, and other vegetable oils? Versus extra virgin olive oil. Yeah. Yeah, so all oils are, are fine to use. The, the superior or the, the gold standard in our oil family is your extra virgin olive oil and your, your olive oils because they have the highest amounts of those healthy um, monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fats. So other types of oils, um, be careful with using sparse amounts, but yeah, if I give any recommendations to my clients, it's olive oil um, as often. Yeah, as often. They're really as you high can. in calories, right? Yeah, and at the end of the day, um, fat is. It, it, olive oil is a fat, so it is the highest, um, quite high in calories. There's about nine grams. Um, sorry, nine calories per per gram of fat. So. Like anything, we just have to be careful with our portions and um, should consume oil in a, in a moderated amount. And yeah. they say about it, a, a tablespoon is, is a serving, so just keep that keep that in mind. Yeah, and I think when it comes to oil, I think it's going to take a lot to knock uh, extra virgin olive oil uh, off its perch. It's probably been one of the, the better studied of, uh, of all the oils, especially in the setting of uh, coronary uh, or cardiovascular disease, so the, the Mediterranean diet, uh, which is the one that gets recommended to patients with high cardiovascular vascular risk factors um, was one of the main features is this extra virgin olive oil that seems to be so kind of heart protective so every so often we do find something and it's like oh that is actually quite good and we should stick to it uh, but it just makes it so much more complicated when you come across the next oil and could this be the next extra virgin olive oil probably not <laughs> apple cider vinegar where are we with that oh, I never stop hearing yeah. about this go on look Where to start again? Um, There isn't any evidence behind apple cider vinegar. So you'll hear people using it because it helps digestion or it helps with mental clarity or skin or whatever it might be. And if it works for you, 
apple cider vinegar isn't harmful. So there is um, no, I guess, safety um, problems there. Except for your esophagus, right? If you take <laughs> yeah. it straight. It's not pleasant. And I wouldn't recommend kissing your, your better half afterwards. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, there isn't any evidence to support all of those claims. So if you enjoy it, by all means, go for it. But it probably isn't doing what you think it is. The, the central claim seems to be its relationship to gut health, yeah. right? And so maybe that segues us to fermented foods, yeah. your sauerkrauts and kimchi. Where yeah. are we at with that? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of our um, fermented foods are high in either yeah, prebiotics or um, probiotics. And we know that our gut is made up of trillions and trillions of um, different bacterial species. And these um, use those prebiotic foods like your, your fermented um fermented foods to to grow and um, to increase in diversity so um, again there there needs to be more research like I always say in this space but um, people see great benefits from including those types of things in their diet regularly. Um, what about uh, herbs and spices? I'm hearing turmeric's all the go. Yeah there is a little bit of evidence around turmeric and inflammation. Um, again more study needs to be done. Take all of this stuff that you see in the media with a grain of salt. If it works for you great but it isn't going to be the miracle superfood that you're hoping for. Yeah in yeah. fact when it comes to things like turmeric I mean I see this happen all the time when we talk about inflammation and we see particularly patients with inflammatory diseases which is more often than not uh, autoimmune diseases which is usually quite serious uh, sold the, the dream of turmeric as this anti-inflammatory the effects that it would have on inflammation would be just so tiny and negligible that on one hand there probably isn't much harm that's going to kind of come from it but on the other hand selling people this kind of pipe dream that it's going to make their rheumatoid arthritis or their lupus better because it's anti-inflammatory i mean now we start to see some of the the pernicious aspects of uh of of spruiking uh herbs and spices and uh because like we said earlier a lot a lot of this isn't just about what can i do to make myself better these are often patients with people patients with problems like diabetes or Mm. inflammatory diseases who are looking for food as a food as a cure which it can be in many ways um but you know there's this is exactly why we need to get professionals involved what about, and I heard the S word a moment ago, what do you make of superfoods as an idea? I hate the word, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you don't have the basis of your diet right and you're not eating your fruits, your vegetables, getting in your lean sources of protein, um, having dairy foods if, if that's what you choose, then no proclaimed superfood is going to solve all your problems. And these superfoods, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a marketing term and companies will use it to persuade you into thinking that their product is a miracle when at the end of the day it just isn't. And, I mean, everything that we eat in our, in our everyday lives can be a superfood. Berries are a superfood. Green leafy vegetables are a superfood. Whole grains, um, legumes, all of those sorts of things, they're, they're really the king of the superfood family. Um, so there's absolutely no need to, to go into purchasing all of these supplements. Get the basis of your diet right. It's supplements, I mean, that's another one, isn't it? Uh, which is a multi, multi-million dollar industry these days. The idea that you need more vitamin C, you need more zinc, etc. Whereas, I mean, I find in, in general practice, most people are really not deficient in any of these things at all. Um, and there are a few cases where people do need iron or, say, pregnant women need a bit more folate, etc. But we've all been sold this idea that 
take more of this thing and you will get better than you are yeah. uh, when really it's probably the, the broader base of your health and diet and, and, and nutrition that you need to attend to rather than just uh, you know, bumping up your vitamin C by eight times what it needs to be and just peeing it out. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, your body can only absorb a certain amount of those vitamins and minerals. So like you said, anything that you're having in excess of that, you will just wee out. So save your money. Your, your wee becomes expensive otherwise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Triple R. Um, you're on Radiotherapy Triple R with um, myself, panel beta, uh, Dr. Sharma, and our very special guest, uh, Millie Padula. Um, let's take it in the direction of diets, shall we? Totally. It's probably the number one thing that uh, is brought up to me by patients, which is weight loss and then how do I go about it, at which point I say it's probably about 70% food, uh, and which, uh, to which they respond with, well, what should I eat? What should I not eat? But actually, in recent times, that conversation's changed a bit because rather than that just being an open-ended question, it's been, what do you think of this diet? And so there's been a few diets uh, in recent times that have gained incredible amounts of popularity, almost kind of cult-like status. And the ones that I see in here of coming up over and over again for weight loss would be the keto diet. Uh, intermittent fasting uh, probably paleo as well although that's starting to fade away a bit and this is a little bit more fringe but some people are going full carnivore full <laughs> carnivore diet uh, as uh, advocated by Jordan Peterson oh, there he is, is again uh, there he is yeah <laughs> how many shows can we get by without mentioning his name oh, yeah more the merrier I yeah think. Yep. so while I've got a bit of a basic understanding of these we're hoping you can illuminate this actually if you could pre- possibly kick us off with what I think is the most popular of all the the weight loss diet these days, keto, the keto movement, keto diets. Tell us. Yeah, everybody seems to be jumping on the keto bandwagon at the moment. And if you jump on Google, Instagram, turn on the TV, everything is about keto. But in simple terms, what um, a keto diet essentially is, is a low carb diet. So that means restricting your carbohydrate intake to less than um, traditionally 20 grams per day. So very, very minimal. A piece of bread has about 10 to 15 grams of carbs. So there's nearly your whole daily intake um, in possibly breakfast. So it is very, very hard to stick to. People have been using it for weight loss, but traditionally it has been used in the treatment of epilepsy. So that's where all the research comes from. And they've found that people, um, I guess individuals with epilepsy who follow this type of diet have reduced frequency of um, seizures, etc. So that's where all the research is. Um, in terms of weight loss, look, I have seen it work in certain circumstances, but it's not something I would recommend as my first um, train of thought. Um, again, being restrictive, And having such minimal carbohydrate intake throughout the day, you're missing out on so many important um, foods. And I guess as as a lot of people may not be aware, your fruits are a carbohydrate, all your dairy products are a carbohydrate, those lentils, legumes, whole grains, they're all such great foods that we need for so many different reasons. And if you're following the keto diet, you're cutting all of that out. So you are at risk of nutritional deficiencies and all sorts of other problems and probably um, risking your social life as well because it isn't very (laughs) enjoyable. Yeah. But... but it is so pervasive, though, that people do move in packs with diets, don't they? they so do. it may well affect your social life if you're hanging out with your mates at the fish and chip shop. But if you're hanging out with your mates at the gym, yeah. um, you're actually getting it reinforced, aren't you? Yeah, exactly right. And yeah. So I, I thought the idea was that um, so you cut out the carbohydrates and then two, three days in, your body goes into this state of ketosis where the fat cells start releasing these 
the, these ketones which you start using instead of glucose yeah. as your energy source. Um, is the idea that, because I can imagine that it'd be very difficult for the first few days, is yes. it in theory supposed to get easier or do you just kind of get used to it? Yeah, it is. And you were right in saying that and I didn't touch on that, but your body relies on carbohydrates as its primary fuel, fuel, fuel source. And I, I should have mentioned that. And what happens is when you reduce your carbohydrate intake, your body is looking for something else to burn as energy and that's where it finds your fat. And a byproduct of fat breaking down is ketones. So they build up in your blood and that's what your body then uses as... as um, as energy and mm. yeah what was your next question sorry well no, does it get easier there's a something called the keto flu right yeah and that's your first two to three days when your body is we call it fat adapting so relying um, less on carbohydrates and and more on fats and people claim it gets easier um, as your body starts to get into that really sort of deep um, fat burning state um, but no diet is easy yeah. and there's some claim that it does uh helps you manage insulin right yeah and there has been a little bit of study um in terms of yeah, for the management of diabetes, but again, very limited. And if I was to ever recommend a low carbohydrate diet, it would be more than that 20 grams per day. It would be at least up to 80 to make sure that they are getting everything they need. Interesting. Now, to actually shift focus from a diet that restricts certain foods is actually another very popular one, which is intermittent fasting. If you can tell us a bit about that. Yep. So again, intermittent fasting is getting a lot of rap in the media. And what it essentially is, is following um, a period of being fed by a period of being fasted. And you probably heard traditionally the 5-2, and that's where you eat your normal um, healthy balanced diet in inverted commas for five days and then you restrict your calorie intake to 500 to 600 calories on two days there is also the 16-8 which is looking at a 24-hour day rather than a week and you are fasting for 16 hours and eating for eight and Interestingly, the research around intermittent fasting is around the treatment of, um, again, diabetes and Alzheimer's and inflammatory conditions and not so much weight loss. They're actually finding that a normal healthy diet is just as good as um, fasting. So there's really no need. Because you're... The theory runs that you're still consuming the same amount of calories. So if you're doing 16-8, which isn't too dramatic because you're no. asleep for potentially eight or yeah, nine of those. That's and, exactly right. right. Um, and, and even when you are fasting, you are allowed to have like black coffee and, uh, and a couple yeah. of other Apple cider vinegar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Not coconut oil. <laughs> Not coconut oil. But um, what I find is people then overcompensate in those hours that they are eating yeah. because they're so hungry and they eat. They, they believe that they can eat more than they should be. Yeah. yeah. And it is interesting. So, I mean, I, as a GP, I get people coming up uh, in asking me about all, all these diets and having actually reviewed the, the research myself in terms of weight loss, they all can work. It's just about whether or not you can stick them. I don't think I could ever stick to a keto diet, but no. maybe that's part of the trick, which is find the one that you actually can stick to that fits in with your life or yeah. your beliefs and your values and and uh, and stick with that and that's that. But, uh, but again, I, I think that all the evidence seems to suggest that if you want success uh, through a diet plan, going through one that's instituted with the help of a professional is far more likely yeah. to work. Yeah. The um, And yeah, and diets are often... A- and whether they're sustainable or not, right? Yeah. The um, the IF, the intermittent fasting, I'm coming across that more and more when people are talking about uh, lifespan and longevity because it seems to put the body into a state of autophagy and therefore that addresses telomeres and the telomeres are the things that are, uh, are correlated with lifespan and so on. Um, but on that very teasing note, we're going to have to start wrapping up. Um, if you could give us uh, your top three, four tips for good, healthy um, food consumption, 
Where are you going to take us? Yeah. So my first one, which we've touched on a lot, is um, focus on what you can eat rather than what you can't. We're so focused on cutting this out, cutting that out, and it's just not sustainable. Um, my second one would be see a dietitian if you can. If you're confused, <laughs> please, um, please do so. And the third one is be careful who you trust Thank on social you. media. And your platform? And my platform. So <laughs> if you'd like to follow me, I'd, I'd love to have you on there. Um, it's at Dietitian Edition. So I would appreciate your support. It is a fantastic resource. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very lucky to have Millie Padula, Dietitian, with us today. Thanks very much, Millie. Thanks, Dr Sharma. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.